Hello everybody at MAFRA, um, nice to be with you uh, virtually. Uh, I'll look forward to seeing you again before too much longer, but we're continuing our series on the book of Revelation today. So I hope you've got Revelation chapter 1 open and uh, we'll read from verses 9 down to the end of verse 20, but we'll pray before we do that. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us, that it uh, rebukes us, it corrects us, it changes us. And it equips us to live godly lives before you in the world that you've put us in. So we pray that as we uh, engage uh, with Revelation today, uh, that you would speak to us afresh and that you equip us to be the kind of people you want us to be. Uh, and so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Right then, uh, so let's read Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven gold lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Revelation chapter 1, 9 to 20, write what you see and send it to my churches. Now when I was with you last, we talked a bit about uh, the word apocalypse. Uh, the word apocalypse, which is the Greek way of saying revelation, to reveal something. It's as though the curtains have been pulled back and we're able to see what the world looks like from the vantage point of heaven. So this is ultimate reality. It's a view from the other world. Now, I said last time, and I'll repeat it, uh, apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. That's the way it's been picked up and used in, in modern senses. But the word apocalypse since, simply means, biblically, to reveal something that would otherwise be unknown. And so F.F. F. Bruce, a great British scholar of the previous century, he said this, that the, uh, apocalyptic um, means the revealing or unveiling of things normally inaccessible to human knowledge and especially of future events. 
Now, the book of Revelation is not only concerned with the future, but it is concerned with the future. But the book of Revelation relates particularly to the, the needs of the people who received it in the first place, the needs of the people in those seven churches that we've heard named that we'll speak more of in a moment. Now, the message of the book of Revelation can be summed up fairly simply. Uh, the Lamb Wins, it's just the name of the, uh, the book that I've got on order. Um, I've, I've got one copy left. Five people have already given me the indication that they want it. So if you want a copy, you'd better get in quickly because I've got the last six copies that Kurong Books said they had in Australia. So it's a great book, The Lamb Wins. A wonderful title that describes um, very succinctly the, the message of the book of Revelation. But The Lamb Wins in a world where conflict is certain. Uh, and, and so the people who are receiving this for the first time, and we here in MAFRA, reading it now, need to know that we are going to be facing conflict and difficulty. And so in the context of all of that, we need to stay faithful. We need to endure suffering because in the end, victory is certain because the lamb wins. That's the message of the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation has inspired a huge number of commentaries. I've got more commentaries on Revelation than any other book of the Bible. Um, some of them are more or less helpful. Uh, but the imagery of the book of Revelation is, is complex and sometimes forbidding, which means a lot of people don't get around to reading it. And it's, it's quite rare to hear it preached, to be honest. But there are some interpretative keys. I didn't make these up. I've learnt them and I think that they're very useful. So if you want to get Revelation, there's four things that I think will help you understand it. Four ways of looking at it. And they can be summed up in a little acronym, GOTRAP. G-O-T-R-A. AP. So the G stands for the gospel. The key to understanding the revelation, the book of Revelation is that the, um, the lamb wins. The victory of the Lord Jesus over sin and death and hell through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension and his current reign and his, his return one day, that's the heart of the gospel message. Uh, that's what you need to look for in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book about the gospel. The confusing imagery in the book is largely explained in the Old Testament. And so the book of Revelation draws on a whole range of images that if you know your Old Testament, you'll, you'll work out where they're from. And as time goes by, we'll be, we'll be looking at some of those things, especially today. But the R of our GOTRAP acronym stands for the readers. One of the keys to understanding any part of the, of the Bible is to ask, what did it mean to the people that first received it? to the, the people who were in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira and so on, what, what did they understand it to mean? Because if we can get into what it meant to them, that will guide us into what it should mean for us. So here's a, a, a little phrase that I've found very helpful. Um, it will never mean to us what it couldn't have meant to them. So if you think the book of Revelation is all about tanks and planes and machine guns, um, that would have made no sense to the people who received it first. Uh, and so that's probably not where we need to look. We need to ask, what did it mean to them? And that will guide us. So the, the R is for readers. And the last of the, last of the GOTRAP acronym, APP, uh, is short for apocalyptic. It's a particular style of writing. It's a revelatory style of writing. There's some patterns and, and, and principles that you can see. It, it's a particular way of writing that was a style of writing that was well known at the time that John was writing, and probably the people who first read it were familiar with that style of writing. Apocalyptic literature 
Uh, it was a message from another world to this world to help us understand what that world looks like. Uh, the message was delivered from God through an angel to God's people who were suffering persecution. And usually it came by way of, of imagery, uh, fantastic imagery of the kind that we see here. So that's apocalyptic. So we need to remember that the gospel is central to Revelation, that it relies on Old Testament imagery. We need to think, what did it mean to its earliest readers? And we need to remember that the message to those earliest readers is couched in language that comes from the genre of writing that we call apocalyptic, a, a heavenly message to earthly people undergoing suffering. With those four principles in mind, we can embark on our interpretation of the book of Revelation. And so we read in verses 9 to 11 of John's commission. So we've had a preamble, we've had a prologue, uh, and now we're into John's commission. This is where the Lord Jesus through his angel is telling John what he needs to do. And so John introduces himself. He says, I, John, your brother. So that's a reminder that the Christian faith is a family faith. People are welcome into the family of faith. John could have pulled rank and said, I'm the brother of Jesus, I'm the apostle. But he didn't. He called, them, he called himself your brother uh, to indicate that he is someone with great family-like closeness to the people that he's writing to. He says, I'm your partner. Now, partner is a business word. It means someone who is engaged in a particular task in league with, in fellowship, in partnership with others. Uh, John is a brother and a partner. In other words, he's on the same journey that they're on. Now, this partnership and this brotherhood is expressed in the tribulation. Now, tribulation is one of those words that's often misunderstood. Uh, but the Lord Jesus says that tribulation for his followers is unavoidable. And so in John 16, verse 33, he said, I've said all these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So there it is. Jesus says to his followers, this is the night before he went to the cross, he said, expect trouble. Trouble will find you. Don't go looking for it, but it will find you. In this world, uh, you will have tribulation, but take heart, says Jesus, I've overcome the world. Now that word overcome is a word that you'll find quite often in the book of Revelation as well. It's a word that you could translate victory. So Jesus has had victory over the world. How did Jesus have victory over the world? On the cross and through the resurrection. Um, and so that's the world that we live in, according to Jesus. The book of Revelation is almost a commentary on what Jesus meant in John 16. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. Now that trouble or tribulation expressed itself in the, the lives of the earliest Christians in a lot of different ways. And so the word that's used for tribulation in, in Revelation chapter 1 and throughout the book uh, is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe persecution or it's used for imprisonment. It's used for anxiety and fear. It's used for the experience of poverty and hardship. It's used for the emotional distress of, of sorrow and, and burdens that seem almost beyond being able to be born. It's used for the experience of public ridicule in the book of Hebrews. But the book of Revelation indicates that this experience of tribulation or trouble is present and it's going to be ongoing because in this world you will have trouble. 
So all of those things are uh, instances of what it means to suffer for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And the earliest believers did that. The book of Revelation is not saying anything that the rest of the New Testament hasn't already said. It's just saying it in a different way. But John needs his readers to know that trouble is unavoidable and so therefore they need, if they're to remain faithful, to look to the one who can help them, who has overcome the world. And so John's commission, he's their brother, he's their partner in tribulation and the kingdom, he says. We looked a little bit at the kingdom the last time, but uh, the kingdom is God's perfect rule. It's, it's a world of, of justice, peace and health. It's the opposite of tribulation. So the kingdom has come in the life and the ministry and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And yet there's an aspect of it that's still future. It has yet to come. And so a phrase that I've picked up, which I found very helpful to understand the nature of the kingdom in the Bible, is that it's now, but it's not yet. It has come, but it's still coming. There's coming a day when the kingdom of God will be established on earth in fullness and completeness in a way that we haven't seen yet. And yet the kingdom has come. And so we live as citizens of God's kingdom. In chapter 1, verse 6, the followers of the Lord Jesus have been described as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now that's a quote from Exodus chapter 19. Uh, As Israel was to be God's special representative nation on earth, the followers of the Lamb, the followers of the Lord Jesus, to be God's special representative people on earth now. That's our task, to represent Jesus before the watching world. It won't always be easy. In this world, you will have tribulation. But that's our status. We're a kingdom of priests. Now, we're told in Revelation chapter 5 that uh, the saints of God, the, uh, the followers of the Lamb, will reign on the earth. So again, there's that idea of, of kingship. And that's the, the privilege. And it's, it's something to look forward to. But that's our future status. We will reign with Jesus on the earth. And that, again, is a reference back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And so we are partners with John and and, and all the people of the churches he was writing to. Um, He's their brother. He's their partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and also in the patient endurance. Because if we are to inherit the kingdom, we can't just give up and say, it's too hard, I'm going to chuck it in. We've got to patiently endure. The kingdom has come and there's power in the fact that it's already come, but there's more yet to come and to inherit the kingdom will require patient endurance. Now that's another, it's a word which occurs again and again throughout the book of Revelation at key points. And so John's introducing us in this first little uh, couple of sentences to some of the big themes that will be unfolded throughout the rest of the book. Patient endurance means to bear up in difficulty. It means to be steadfast. It means to persevere. It means to have guts. Um, the, the things that we must do in life that are challenging will always require these characteristics. You can't just quit. You can't just pull out. You can't say no too much. You've got to go through it. It takes guts. It's essential that the followers of Jesus in this world of trouble and tribulation show patient endurance. And so it comes out at a number of points in the book. Uh, it's, in, it's absolutely essential that we show patient endurance while we, while we suffer and, and while we're suffering for the sake of Jesus through persecution. Now, an illustration of patient endurance, uh, the very famous 
English Prime Minister at the time of the Second World War was Winston Churchill. And he gave a speech at the school that he was once a student at uh, in 1941, uh, when Britain had been under attack from, from the Nazis and their, their war planes. And he went back and spoke to the boys at Harrow School. And he gave a famous speech and said, never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never in nothing. Great or small, large or petty, never give in. And he described the situation that England had found itself in. We stood all alone a year ago and to many countries it seemed that our account was closed. We were finished. But by what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands, though we ourselves never doubted it, we, never, we now find ourselves in a position where I say that we can be sure that we have only to persevere to conquer. We have only to persevere to conquer. That's actually a fairly good summary of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a call on its readers then and now to persevere to conquer. Because you see, the conquest has already been won because Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits. And so therefore the conquest is certain we need to persevere with the strength that the Lord Jesus gives us. And so John says he's their brother, he's their partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now what does that mean? Well, again, a war war type of image. Uh, Stephen E. Ambrose was uh, the leader of a crack company of American paratroopers that flew behind the lines on the, uh, the D-Day landings in Normandy that began the end of the last phase of the Second World War when the, the, the continent of Europe was invaded by Allied, Allied soldiers. Uh, he described his exploits and those of his comrades in, in a book called Band of Brothers, which was made into a very successful TV series. Now that phrase, Band of Brothers, actually comes from Shakespeare and it comes from one of his plays where, where it's describing a military uh, operation which is so difficult and so daunting and yet so necessary that before the battle is joined one says to another that uh, there'll come a day when people wish they were part of this because we're a band of brothers. The idea of the band of brotherhood means that people are, are connected by incredible bonds in a task that's difficult and yet they find the fellowship of shared suffering is so extraordinary that they regard it as a privilege. And that's what John is saying here. John is their brother, he's their partner in tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance. And so it's as much as he's saying John and his readers are privileged comrades in the noblest of conflicts. And no matter the cost or the outcome, they know that they're on the right side and that uh, that there's a privilege of doing this together. And that's what John was calling the people of the seven churches to. And that's what the Holy Spirit is calling us to today, uh, to, to, to regard ourselves in this troublesome world as, as being amongst a privileged band because we're facing this together for the Lord Jesus. And so John says, I, I John, was on the island called Patmos. Now there's a map of the ancient Roman world and uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And the region that John was writing to was what the Romans called Asia Minor. So it's to the north and west of Israel. Uh, It's what we would now call Turkey. And John was on an island called the island of Patmos. Now, he wasn't there on holiday. Uh, He was there, as we'll see in a moment, for reasons other than leisure. 
These days, the island of Patmos is a beautiful island in the Mediterranean, and it's the kind of place that people do go on holidays. But John was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. One of the earliest commentators on the book of Revelation was a man called Victorinus, and he wrote it in the third century, and he said that John was on the island of Patmos condemned to the labour of the mines by Caesar Domitian. Now, we believe that all of the earliest disciples of Jesus uh, met untimely deaths. They were executed, except for John. But John became a prisoner, and he was exiled to this little dot of an island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea, and uh, the Mediterranean Sea. He was exiled there because of the activity of the Roman Emperor Caesar Domitian. Uh, and there he worked in the mines. He was a quarrier. It was no picnic. So he's there on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In John's first gospel, he describes Jesus as being the word, the word of God, the living word who became flesh. Testimony, as we saw last time, just means to tell what you know, what you've heard, what you've seen, what you've come to believe. The testimony of Jesus is the message of Jesus, because that's the only content we've got. We talk about what Jesus taught, taught about, but it's also the message about Jesus, about what he did, his miracles, his birth, death, resurrection, ascension, all of those sorts of things. Um, the testimony is the message of of Jesus, what Jesus taught, and it's the message about Jesus. So testimony is seeing, telling what you've seen, heard, and come to believe. And it's on account of that that John's on the island of Patmos. He's there in the quarries because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus, even though it became illegal to do so. So John, we know, is a witness of Jesus Christ's glory. Uh, we read that in Matthew 17. We read it in John 1. John was an eyewitness of the glory of the Lord Jesus. Um, John had testified about Christ's glory. So in the book of Acts chapter 4 and 5, we read that Peter and John preached and they were told to stop and, and John said, we can't help it. But Acts chapter 5 tells us that Peter and John rejoiced that they were counted worthy to, dis to suffer disgrace for the sake of the name of Jesus. So John's in fact calling his readers in these seven churches and us too, He's at the end of a long life, a life that has had much joy, no doubt, but, but it's been punctuated by, by great grief and distress and sorrow. And at the end of this long life, he's calling his readers to a level of commitment to the testimony of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the message about Jesus, that he's himself demonstrated for decades. He's paid the price of, of, of flogging of, of uh, terrible persecution and now he's paying the price of imprisonment for the sake of the message of Jesus. So he's not an armchair expert directing things from afar. He's saying, I'm going through it, you're with me in this, but you'll need to do as I've done. You'll need to be faithful uh, and endure for the sake of the message of the Lord Jesus. And so John's commission continues verses 10 to 11 I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard me a loud voice like a trumpet saying write what you see in a book and send it so the first day was uh, John was a Jew of course but uh, the, uh, this is a, an early witness to the idea that Christians gathered on the first day of the week because it was resurrection day um, he's told to write things down that means he's working as a prophet that's the sort of thing that that God had said to the to, to the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, write this thing down. So what John is writing down is a word of prophecy 
in, in engaging himself with the, the practical needs of the people that he's writing to. So he writes from this island of Patmos. Uh, if you look at the map there, you'll see that uh, this region of Asia Minor uh, is right on the borderline of, of Europe and Asia. And just as a matter of interest to us Aussies, uh, it's not that far from Gallipoli. The Gallipoli Peninsula is um, amongst the most southern points of the European continent. Um, but John had to write to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. There were more than seven Christian churches in that area, we know that. Uh, but seven is a special number, it's the, the, the divine number. And so we believe that he wrote to these seven churches, or the, the seven named churches, probably because from them copies of his letter could find their way to other places because they were all very well connected by Roman roads that went right throughout that area. But seven is the perfect number, so therefore he's writing to just the right number of churches for his message to take root. And so John has a vision, a son of man he sees who looks like the ancient of days. So verse 12, I turned to see. John had heard a voice. Now he turns to see who's speaking and he sees someone standing amongst seven lampstands. Uh, that someone is one like a son of man. Now that's a, a Hebrew way of saying a human. It's a, it's a figure of speech. And it takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. And so the description that John gives of this one like a son of man, uh, he's clothed with a long robe, uh, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. Think back to the reading of Daniel 7 that you had earlier. John is describing a human who shares some of the characteristics of the Ancient of Days from Daniel chapter 7. And so you can see there in, in Daniel 7 verse 9, the, the Ancient of Days, who it's another way of saying God, seated on his throne, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His clothing was white as snow. So this Son of Man in Revelation 1 is described in a way that picks up some of the imagery of Daniel chapter 7, which is a very curious thing. We need to think very hard about that. This son of man is dressed in a way that sounds like he's a priest or perhaps even a king, or perhaps we think to, to think of both things. He's a, a king and a priest. So this son of man walking amongst the seven lampstands having an appearance which recalls the description of God from Daniel 7 makes this son of man a very intriguing personality. You see, what's happening here is this human, because that's what son of man means, was described as was the ancient of days. In Daniel 7, the son of man that, John, that Daniel sees coming with the clouds, he's presented to the ancient of days and he's given dominion, glory, and an eternal kingdom where he's served by all peoples and nations. Imagine that. God giving a human rule that belongs only to him. What's happening here in, John, in Revelation 1 is that John has previously seen Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's met him after the resurrection. But now he's seeing a vision of Jesus who's reigning reigning as the eternal priest who always speaks for his people, reigning as the eternal king who will one day come back to earth and establish God's kingdom finally. And so John 
uses majestic imagery now. He says the voice that he heard was like a trumpet and like the sound of roaring waters. That's to remind us of Exodus 19 where the voice of God thundered like a trumpet, we're told. But it also picks up an image that may have to do with the ocean that the island of Patmos was surrounded by uh, or perhaps the, the sound of waterfalls because in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 43, the, uh, the voice of God is described as being like many waters. The picture I've got there is Victoria Falls on the Zambezi River in, um, in Africa on the border of Zimbabwe and Zambia. And apparently you can, you can hear the Victoria Falls 40 kilometres away. It's one of the world's largest waterfalls. Uh, the, the, the local people, the local language, they call it the, the smoke that thunders. Uh, and, and so this, this is an idea that's been brought across here. It's the voice that he, John hears sounds like a trumpet, which reminds us of, of Mount Sinai. But it, it sounds like many waters, which is uh, just this majestic image for a, a voice which um, is extraordinary and needs to be taken very seriously. And so this voice gives John the vision. John sees in verse 16 that in the right hand of this Son of Man are seven stars. Now again, that is an image that comes from the book of Daniel. In, in the book of Daniel, the stars that Daniel sees are linked to the saints of the Most High. Um, from his mouth comes a two-edged sword. That's a, uh, an image which comes from Isaiah 11 and 49, where it's wielded by, in the first instance, the righteous ruler, and then by Yahweh's servant. It's an image of judgment. So this son of man, dressed as a priest and a king, dressed in a way that recalls the description of Yahweh from the Ancient of Days, from, uh, from Daniel 7, uh, he's someone who will come to judge. And so verses 17 to 20 give us the content of John's message. He was scared to death uh, with, with what he'd seen. And that's a typical reaction to the divine presence in the Bible. Uh, it's a typical reaction. John was scared to death, but this son of man, who can only be Jesus, says, fear not. Now, they're the, the characteristic words of Jesus. That's what he said uh, to the disciples when they were terrified on the lake, when he calmed the storm, fear not. Uh, that's what he says uh, at the end of his career as he's about to ascend to heaven, fear not. Uh, this is someone who could only be Jesus, this human who shares the attributes of God. And so we see here that he describes himself as the first and last. Um, that's another way of saying the Alpha and the Omega from chapter 1 verse 8, where it's applied to the Lord God. Uh, that's a, a quote from Isaiah 44. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. This human, this son of man, is using a, a description of himself that is only fitting for God. And so we can put all of this data together and, and find within these words the interpretation that what the person that John is looking at is in fact God. It's a human who is God. That's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who is always God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus has the keys. He has the keys to death and Hades. Um, he has authority over, uh, over death. Um, Jesus has authority in verse 19 over the present and the future. He says, write down what you see, the things that are and the things that must soon take place. Jesus has authority over the, seven, the situation confronting the seven churches. He has authority over the whole sweep of history until he returns again. 
Verse 20, the, the symbols that, uh, that Jesus uses are explained. He says the stars are angels. Now, whether they're, the word angel means messenger, whether they're heavenly messengers or whether they're the messengers of the churches, we're not sure. But the seven stars are the seven angels. Uh, the lampstands are churches. Uh, now, what, what that means is congregations, gatherings, assemblies of the people of the Lord Jesus. The word church in the New Testament never means a building. Um, it never does. It just means a group of people who came together for the sake of the Lord Jesus, gathered around his word. And so the lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, the idea of a lampstand for the church uh, is something that um, again owes itself to Old Testament imagery from Exodus and from Numbers, but particularly from Zechariah chapter 4. And the image of the lampstand is light goes out into the holy place, the temple or the tabernacle, and that light is a picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so in Zechariah 4, we read that the lampstand is a representation that Zechariah, will, will, or Zerubbabel as it was uh, in, in Zechariah 4, he's going to triumph not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And so the lampstand is a sign that Christians gathered in churches have this unfailing source of power available to them as they face tribulation and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit amongst Christian churches that makes them Christian. Now the lampstand was of course used in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Um, there's a, an image from the Roman Arch of Titus to show the, 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 the lampstand being uh, taken out of the Jerusalem temple when the Romans destroyed it. Uh, but the, lamp, the idea of the, the, these lampstands means that the, the church, the gathering of God's people, not the building, the gathering of God's people, has become the new temple of God. That's where God lives. God lives in his people, but he lives among his people by his Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together, there I am with them. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that Jesus is with us here in Mafra? Jesus says, I'm always with you to the very end of the age, Matthew 28, verse 20. In 1 Corinthians, Paul asks the Corinthians the question, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? And he means there the church because the word used there is plural. He means there amongst the gathered group of people. Uh, even the Christian groups may feel small, insignificant and, and, and under attack, and yet, the privilege that they have is that they are the representation of where God lives. They are the new temple um, of, of, uh, made holy by the presence of God's spirit. And so the message of the seven lampstands and the son of man, the Lord Jesus walking amongst them, is that Jesus is alive in his churches and those churches have inherited Israel's priestly role of being a kingdom of priests, God's representatives. That's who we are. That's who the people of Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum and so on, that's who they were. That's the identity of every Christian church through all the generations. We are where Jesus lives by his spirit. We are his earthly representatives. And so to sum all these things up, we can say this. John represents himself to his readers as their brother, their partner in tribulation and the kingdom, but to receive the kingdom, they're going to need to patiently endure. He's on Patmos, but he's in the spirit. 
and he brings a message from heaven for the scattered followers of Jesus in Asia Minor and for every other reader of it down the ages. He uses a range of Old Testament imagery which combines to show that Jesus, the crucified Saviour, is the risen Son of Man who's now reigning in heaven but is present by his Spirit with each of the churches that gathers in his name forever. So this is a vision from another world which has as its goal the transformation of our understanding of this world. We may be very conscious of the tribulation that Jesus said would inevitably come to his people. We may be very conscious of that. But if all we focus on is the trouble that we're facing on without thinking of the resources at our, at our hand, we're kind of missing the point. The book of Revelation is written to people who are undergoing persecution, undergoing tribulation that says, look up, understand your world and your experience of it from the vantage point of heaven. Jesus has won. Jesus is with you. Jesus will win. Hold on. Now in that little summary there, we see our GOTRAP acronym again. Jesus, the crucified, risen saviour. There's your G, that's gospel. Um, using this range of Old Testament imagery from Exodus, from Numbers, from, from Isaiah, from Daniel. Um, all Old Testament imagery combining. Uh, the readers, John was writing to these seven churches. It will never mean to us what it couldn't have meant to them. But he uses apocalyptic language, apocalyptic language where earth is um, represented as, as it's seen from, from heaven. Got rap. They're our four interpretative keys. But the message of the book of Revelation is a message not just for the seven churches then, but for all churches at all times, for all believers at all times. It's a transforming message. I've probably told you before about Corrie ten Boom, a great hero of the Christian faith from the Second World War era. Uh, for the, the trouble that she went to with her family of rescuing Jews from Nazi persecution. She was sent with her sister Betsy to Ravensbrück prison camp for women in Germany. And there they shared dormitory accommodation with many, many, many other women. Uh, very crowded and dank accommodation. Uh, she tells her story in a wonderful book, The Hiding Place. And in the crowded uh, cells of, of the Ravensbrück prison, she and Betsy had smuggled a little Bible in and they gathered other women around them when they weren't at work uh, and they shared the Bible with them. But they discovered that the place was absolutely swarming with fleas, that the, the, the straw tick mattresses that they were sleeping on were absolutely flea-ridden. Betsy said to her sister, we've got to, to say thank you for the fleas. Corrie cried out, show us how, show us how. Um, it was said so matter-of-factly it took me a second to realise that, that, that Betsy was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Now, Betsy was quite sure that they had to say thank you to God for everything, including fleas. And Corrie said, no, I can't say thank you to, for fleas. But in the context of that dormitory with the straw tick mattress, they realised that it was the fleas that were keeping the guards out. And so therefore they had the freedom to read the Bible and to teach other people about Jesus, even in there. And sorry, Corrie ended up saying these were little previews of heaven, these evenings beneath the light bulb. And she then went on and said that thus began the closest, most joyous weeks of all the time in Ravensbrook, side by side in the sanctuary of God's fleas, 
Betsy and I ministered the word of God to all in the room. We sat by deathbeds that became doorways of heaven. We watched women who had lost everything grow rich in hope. The knitters of Barracks 28 became the praying heart of the vast diseased body that was Ravensbrook, interceding for all the camp, guards as well as prisoners. That's the transformation that comes when people realise that Jesus is the victor. Even a flea-ridden prison cell can come, become a doorway to heaven when we realise that in Christ we are the conquerors. And so at the end of the book, Corrie testified that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. John's vision from another world has been transforming believers for centuries. Corrie was one of them. She discovered that even in the brutality, even in the tribulation of a Nazi prison camp, Jesus was the victor. And so let's take to heart chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Trouble will come to us all. Uh, many of you already know that. Um, sometimes that trouble will be just the normal stresses and strains of being human. But sometimes trouble will come to us because we follow Jesus, because we testify to Jesus. Whatever, don't quit, patiently endure, because the Lamb wins. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to take to heart the words of this wonderful book and help us to view our life uh, from the lens of heaven. Help us to take to heart these things that we read and find revealed here uh, so that as we face the tribulation that's a normal part of our life, we would never lose heart and give in, but that we would patiently endure, uh, testifying to all that Jesus taught us uh, testifying to all that Jesus has done for us as our sin-bearing saviour. And we pray that you would help us in Mafra to be good representatives of the name of the Lord Jesus until he comes again. We pray these things in his name. Amen.